questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. From the words of tonight's special guest, quote, Wow, who doesn't like the movies? Possibly the folks picking up the popcorn off the sticky floors. But then again, they may get free admission. Movies are much more than entertainment. They are a worldwide cultural phenomenon. They can be beautiful, wonderful, horrific, shocking, entrancing, mesmerizing. Movies change people's lives. Movies rule people's lives. They tell us how to live. They teach our children. They sell us wars. Their influence is overwhelming. Now, what can I say? I love movies. As a member of the first television generation, I grew up with them. Movies have helped from my worldview and still do. I minored in drama at college and wrote plays. Turner Classic Movies is often the background noise in my office. I enjoy the narratives, the music. It's comfort food. But sadly, time has shown me that there is more to the cinema that meets the eye. Unquote. Tonight, we'll dive into the deep, dark, and mysterious undertones hidden in Tinseltown's biggest films. After years of scholarly research, our special guest has compiled his most read essays, combining philosophy, comparative religion, symbolism, geopolitics, and their connections to film. You will watch movies with new eyes, able to decipher on your own as the secret meanings of cinema are unveiled. You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy, MMS, CBD pure hemp oil, Divinia water, pure organic sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. And now, here's your host, Mel Hostelrick. Jay Dyer is one of the foremost deconstructors of the hidden agendas and narratives of Tinseltown and its friends. Jay'sAnalysis.com has been a prime mover of the film studies discussion on the internet. Jay is an author, comedian, and TV presenter known for his deep analysis of Hollywood, geopolitics, and culture. His graduate work focuses on psychological warfare and film, and he is the author of two books, Esoteric Hollywood 1 and 2, and the co-creator and co-host of the television show Hollywood Decoded. He has been featured on numerous popular shows and podcasts and in debates with some of the world's top debaters. His website is jaysanalysis.com. Jay Dyer joins us tonight on Veritas. Hello, Jay, and welcome. How are you? Thank you for having me. I'm doing great. I, I apologize for the snappy last time. I would have loved to have been with you earlier, but um, I'm glad to be here now. I appreciate that you are back and that we reconnected. Jay, you're new on Veritas. Let's 
let's set the foundation for those who may not know who you are. When did you begin to decode an interpret, make an interpretation of the images and symbols that scroll across these all-pervasive screens that dominate our daily lives? It was really something that grew out of just loving movies. I mean, all the way back into, you know, the 80s. I'm a child of the 80s, so I grew up with Star Wars. I grew up with E.T., Spielberg, George Lucas, Indiana Jones, all those kinds of uh, you know, 80s uh, uh, staples. And then when I was in high school, I was getting more and more into theater. Uh, I did a lot of um, acting. I did a lot of plays in high school and decided that's what I wanted to do. And uh, I live in a small town, so there wasn't a lot of stuff to do other than uh, movies. I mean, people were either uh, into the arts or you were doing meth or, you know, some kind of drug or something like that because <laughs> there's nothing else to do. So uh, my buddies and I, we were more uh, artistically inclined. So I got really into the classics. I got really into, you know, the, the big directors, Kubrick, Scorsese, De Palma, you know, all these different guys. And um, I, right around my sophomore, senior year, I started noticing certain themes in movies that I didn't really get. Like, you know, I, would, I was already kind of into Oliver Stone at the time, and I'd seen uh, Natural Born Killers, and I knew that it was satire and that kind of stuff. But I noticed that certain movies, like Dick Donner's Conspiracy Theory, you know, they had these themes of like mind control and then, you know, other films I'd watched, Long Kiss Goodnight, you know, they, they also had this mind control theme. So I was already kind of prepped for trying to decode film just from being a, a movie buff back in high school. And then when I went to uh, college, I took a lot of film classes and history classes and philosophy classes. And I started noticing kind of parallels between these worlds. And then in grad school, I really tried to focus on uh, geopolitics, espionage propaganda and then that really you know sealed the deal for how all these different worlds are related together so i noticed that hollywood had been used for propaganda a lot a lot of a-list actors famous stars had been spies had worked for various intelligence agencies had been informants this kind of stuff and i just thought that was the, the perfect realm for me to you know combine all these different interests of geopolitics propaganda uh, intelligence agencies, espionage, and movies. And uh, that's what I did. And that's what kind of snowballed into, you know, doing a blog. Uh, and then that snowballed into doing a book and then uh, the TV show and what I'm doing now. Before we begin, let me just mention that at the beginning of your book, Esoteric Hollywood, your, your publisher mentioned three authors, Daniel Estulin, HBL Borelli, and Nick Bryant. I was introduced to the three of them by your publisher, Trying Day. Mm -hmm pretty much at the same time, almost 10 years ago or more. Wow. I had them I had them on about a decade ago, and strange things happened during that time, almost as if I shouldn't have had them on. And I see your publisher has a story about these three authors at the beginning of your book. Can you share that story, if you remember it, with our audience? I, I'm trying to remember. Um, it's about you... the movies. Movies, all of a sudden he started getting, he started getting people from the streets, threatening to saying don't go there oh he has told me this story that's right yeah i um and i think it had to do maybe with uh daniel with daniel estelin's book about um bilderberg Shatter. exactly yeah yeah I, I i don't doubt i mean chris has told me that story multiple times um i'd forgotten about that but i don't doubt that you know when you when you delve into these topics you know maybe even 
years ago, they were worried about what would be coming out in the news eventually. You know, they, I, I think they, they know that certain things eventually do get out. We've seen this with Epstein and this kind of stuff. And, um, you know, I think that the, the chapter on Eyes Wide Shut is really pertinent to what's come out with just Lane Maxwell and Epstein and all that stuff. I mean, I didn't even know about, you know, the Epstein stuff back when I wrote the book. I was familiar with the fact that, uh, you know, we did, uh, Chris did a book on the Franklin cover-up. I'd read Daniel Esselin's books. So I was familiar with a lot of this material. Uh, then the Savile stuff, Penn State stuff came out. Um, but I didn't really know that it was as kind of organized and, um, you know, that it was Epstein and this kind of stuff. I just thought, well, you know, Kubrick's telling us something with, with Eyes Wide Shut here. So I just kind of speculated on the basis of themes throughout films uh, and just kind of prognosticated. And, and then, what do you know, a couple of years after I, I write the first book, you know, a lot of this Epstein stuff comes out public. And I find it very interesting and, and worrisome that back 10 years ago, 12 years ago, when Nick Bryan wrote that book and we discussed it all here, mm. it, it was almost like a call it roadkill. People just drive by, but they don't want to stop. They don't want to look at it. They ignored it. The media never touches it. But right now, if you go to social media, all you see is these hashtags, save our children. And everybody's talking about it. However, if you turn on mainstream media, not once do they talk about child trafficking, pedophilia. Mm. Once in a while, you hear something about Epstein, but never taken seriously. Why do you think that is? Well, it's obviously because of the control of the of media. The media functions as kind of a uh, a steersman, an oarsman, I guess you could say, to steer narratives, the, the grand narrative. And really, it's only alternative media that even gets some of these these stories out. And even the alternative media is not uh, perfect, obviously. It's, it's not ideal. But, uh, you know, they're a small fraction of the audience. 10 years ago, five years ago, it's definitely grown. Uh, all of us, I think, have seen a lot of growth and hence why they've engaged in all the censorship that they've, they've uh, resorted to. But media is just one of the arms of the octopus. You say, quote, the camera is much more than a recording apparatus. It is a medium via which messages reach us from another world that is not ours. And that brings us to the heart of a great, of a great secret. Here, magic begins, unquote. Do you mean Black magic? I do, quite literally. I, I mean, depending upon how far one wants to go with the meaning of the word black magic, uh, if one thinks of ancient empires and their propaganda, you know, the sorcerers and the priestly class that were standing behind the emperors and the, the, the so-called divine rulers, you know, that, that's who is really maybe controlling things. Uh, you know, many philosophers have posited this. Nietzsche, for example, said that the priest class was who was really in control of this kind of stuff. And uh, uh, so if one doesn't believe in, you know, supernatural forces, you can still understand it from that perspective that the, uh, the power structure has to construct narratives. Plato included this in the Republic. It's called, you know, the, the ring of Gyges. It's the, the myth of the ring. It's the, it's the myth of the state, the noble lie to create the story, to create the narrative. And, uh, you know, societies live on the basis of their stories, the stories that they tell, the shared mythos. And so that's why Plato understood the arts had to be controlled. Uh, so, you know, certainly there's good and bad in Plato. I'm not trying to paint with too broad a brush, but modern uh, psychological warfare, modern social engineering uh, certainly takes 
a lot of cues from the ancient world. And, and in that sense, you could say, yeah, black magic is basically a form of psychological warfare. Are movies, in your opinion, the perfect mechanism to program our children's minds? And the reason why I say that, decades ago, I used to see Disney as the most innocent thing in the world. But, you know, the Internet gave us ways to analyze and, and to rewatch films and, and zoom at things. And what I found, and you have found that too, probably, it's probably one of the most corrupt, perverted yeah. places in Hollywood. Yeah, I think that movies were the perfect means of programming and propaganda for a long time. I don't think they're as important anymore. Uh, that's kind of been upstaged in the last, uh, I guess you could argue, decade by, you know, things like video games. Video games are quickly taking precedent. They're not maybe at the top yet, but they will be eventually. And, and probably some version of virtual movie slash gaming, choose your own adventure type of stuff will probably at some point replace it. But, uh, you know, the older studio system is pretty much uh, replaced by streaming services now. That's the new the new Hollywood, you could say, and and they still, I guess you could say, have the upper hand, but I think eventually it's going to turn into something related to, to gaming. But at least in the last century, yes, uh, movies were, in the words of, I think, Bernays, right? Edward Bernays, uh, father of propaganda, w there was no better tool for propaganda than Hollywood, he said. And I, I think I quote that in one of the books. What's your opinion of China owning so many movie theaters and movie studios? I think that they, uh, from their vantage point of whatever their doctrine of uh, psychological warfare is, of course, you know, nation states have what they call a, a doctrine of, of info war. Uh, various nations have various approaches. Uh, I would imagine that their approach would be that, you know, they understood the power of film, uh, the power of propaganda precisely through movies and hence why they bought up, uh, you know, mo I don't I think most of the, of the studios now. You may remember, I'm also a child of the 80s, and I remember the movie Red Dawn. Loved that movie. was so realistic. Yes. yes. But then fast forward to just a few years ago, the new installment of Red Dawn, I hated it. And you probably know this, but they had to redo the movie because it was based on China and they had to be switched to North Korea. Did you see that? <laughs> yeah, I did. I thought that was kind of comical, actually. And I think that, you know, the whole movie bombed. It yes. got, I think, like 10% <laughs> positive ratings on Rotten Tomatoes or something like that. But, but yeah, I mean, and if, you, if we think back to, you know, Red Dawn in the 80s, that, that was also, a, you know, a kind of a Cold War propaganda piece. And it's very ironic that, uh, you know, decades later it's remade and, uh, you know, who the, 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 the ideology and power block that it was intended to kind of critique and, go against has now basically bought it out. I mean, it's just kind of uh, mind-blowing, really, that, that that's where we are with where things have progressed. Uh, and I think the only way really to understand it is to understand that, uh, you know, communism itself is ultimately kind of run, in my view, by very wealthy people. It's just another system of control that's not really about redistributing wealth. It's about consolidating wealth and transferring it to uber-wealthy people. I'm so glad you're saying that because people think when they hear the words communism or socialism or democratic socialism, that they think that this is just a, a such a nice progressive word. But right. they have to just look at every single failure. I mean, look at Cuba, look at Venezuela. Just a few, as you say, consolidate all that wealth and they're still the rich and they're still 
uber rich more than more so than before. And right. the rest is equally miserable. Yeah, it's one of the greatest scams. Uh, I, I do cover uh, the, the uh, several Cold War era films in this the sequel in part two i have kind of a section where i look at cold war movies and what they were saying the pros and the cons and i was trying to stress that you know that this uh this is just a scheme basically to um get everybody to think that uh it's going to be fairly redistributed and and by the way who is going to decide what's fair like who's going to decide you know the the right amounts to redistribute i mean it's just all kind of like based on really fanciful, uh, you know, altruism. And I hate to break it to you, but the world doesn't work that way. You know, it's just, it's just another of the classic scams out there to think that the wealth's going to be re redistributed, but it actually just gets consolidated and transferred usually to really elite banking families and that kind of stuff. So, um, I do, I do touch on the, the elite control of communism as well as the other, isms and you know socialism uh, fascism as well i see those as kind of uh, you know in the from the perspective of uh, professor anthony sutton that's just kind of being uh, techniques of consolidation of power and wealth how close in your opinion are intelligence agencies associated with hollywood and even organized religion very close very very close uh, that was really the big red pill to swallow in this this uh, uh, years of research that I did. And when I first heard this, I think I was reading a book from uh, my publisher many years ago. Um, I think it was Peter Lavenda's trilogy. And he, he had a section where he was talking about the relationship between Hollywood and, and the CIA. And I, I was kind of surprised when I first read that, maybe in 2007 or eight, somewhere in there. I thought, that's that sounds crazy. Uh, you know, I knew that there had been movies made about the CIA and this kind of stuff, but the idea that there would be this really intimate connection just seemed kind of like a far flung conspiracy theory. And so what I wanted to do was, uh, you know, really get to the bottom of it to see if that was true. And so the more that I dug, the more that I researched. And I, at the time I was, you know, studying at, at the grad level, I had a lot of access to, you know, research papers, journals, uh, you know, JSTOR, the kind of stuff that you only get if you're, you know, a, a currently active student or professor. And the more I dove into the history of propaganda, and I really focused on the Bond series, 007, Ian Fleming, his own life. Uh, that's a, a, a test case for, you know, one of the easiest ways to see the close connection between intelligence agencies uh, and, and film. Uh, and it actually goes all the way back to the beginning of the camera. But um, they're very close. They're they're more or less, you could almost say, flip sides of the same coin. We'll discuss uh, James Bond later. It, I love that uh, the franchise. Now, Stanley Kubrick, you do a great analysis of some of his most popular films. Let me pick uh, a few of them, but let me begin with one. Let me pick on 2001, A Space Odyssey. Do you think this movie was the mental preparation so the masses could believe the Apollo mission was real since it came out a year before? I differ with uh, Jay Widener on that. Uh, I, I love Jay. I respect him a lot. Um, you know, when we did our show, we did a full season, full production show on the basis of of uh, my book and his work as well. And and, and one of the areas we didn't agree, we disagree much, but one of the areas where we did disagree is uh, is over this. I do think Kubrick is uh, dropping hints, but I don't think that is what the movie's about. Uh, neither The Shining, uh, nor our, our, nor, nor do we agree agree on uh, 2001. I see 2001 uh, correctly, as Jay says in his documentary, as a uh, apotheosis of man, evolutionary ascent, 
But I disagree. I don't think that um, we're going to achieve transhumanist apotheosis. Uh, I, I see Kubrick as saying that's kind of what our destiny is to become star child. Um, I have a different worldview. I don't, I don't buy into that stuff. Um, I do think the shining, however, is about the haunting of America. It's a critique of America, Americanism. I do think there's little hints and codes dropped in there about Apollo mission and this kind of stuff and Americanism with some of the stuff that Jay points out, but I don't think primarily that that's what the shining is about. What is twilight, twilight language? This is an idea from Hoffman that, uh, and I think he draws from older um, Hindu notions of what's called Sandhabhyasa, which has to do with uh, higher level synchronicities and connections bet between things. And so it's almost like, is there a, a story within a story, you could say? Is there, is, is there a secret higher level narrative perhaps being told from within a narrative? Um, it might be in a movie or it might be, you know, something that someone experiences in their own life, right? Like weird synchronicities or something like this. Um, uh, so in that regard, what uh, Hoffman proposes in his book, Secret Societies, is that, you know, sometimes movies might have uh, double significances to names, to places, to uh, dates, to numbers, you know, all these kinds of things might at times have a Uh, secondary, higher-level mystical significance. Sometimes it's referred to as mystical toponymy. If you read uh, uh, James Shelby Downard, right, his his Carnival's classic, which is about well, it's a lot. It's about a lot of things. But yeah, if you go read his sort of uh, uh, crazy stories about uh, his encounters with secret societies and masons and stuff like that in the Deep South, it's it's a fascinating book. Uh, I recommend it. But you know, he gets into some of that there. The King Kill 33 story with, you know, the, the weird things that pop up in the JFK assassination. So so that's kind of the, the idea here is that there's a, a kind of a dark uh, language that's being spoken maybe at a secret higher level. You could think of it like the way gangs, you know, gangs speak in weird symbols and they have these, you know, graffiti that they tag you know, walls with, and it's hard to decipher it. But if you're in another gang, you can read it, right? So in the same way, you know, twilight language could be something that uh, the cryptocracy or the elite kind of signify uh, their, their hidden meanings with. Do you think this is part of the predictive programming that we see? Perhaps we, we don't see it uh, with our conscious mind, but subliminally we are absorbing all that in movies? I do. I do think there is something to that. Um, a lot of the, the when the military and the intelligence agencies, when they, when they've studied film and they have to a scientific degree, you know, infinitely, you know, they're very interested in how to uh, alter perception, alter ideas, alter worldviews. And film is one of the great ways to do that. And so they've studied all the different ways to, you know, even affect the physiognomy of the body to have a, a, a crash sequence going a certain way that it most affects the central nervous system. I mean, it really is studied to that degree, which is pretty wild if you think about it. Um, and so it's not a, a stretch to think that they've also looked at, you know, how film affects the subconscious, how we perhaps store away all that information that we see in the movies. And maybe we don't even know that. Um, it makes me think of, uh, you know, certain directors uh, who are pretty vocal at times about their esoteric worldviews, you know, quite a few, maybe not all of them, but quite a few of the, uh, you know, prominent big name directors seem to have an affinity for esoteric stuff, you know, secret societies, 
a mystical theology, religion, et cetera. And they tend to put that in the films uh, explicitly. Uh, some of them only only do mystical films, right? You know, Jodorowsky, you know, David Lynch, um, uh, Darren Aronofsky. You know, he he does films based on uh, Zen, on uh, Kabbalism. Uh, you know, all these different esoteric directors like that pop up at times. Even some of the more no- normie popular directors at times have that that mystical bent as well. Spielberg, you know, even a Hitchcock at times. So uh, that's kind of what I dive into the book is is looking at the the more esoteric and, and, um, secret society, the Freemasonic and these kinds of symbols that pop up in the film. Before I dive into Spielberg's work, I have to ask you from the beginning, could Spielberg had anything to do with the death of Heather O'Rourke? And for those who don't know, Heather was the child actress from the 1982 movie Poltergeist. And I find it interesting, Jay, that Spielberg had two movies come out almost simultaneously. Poltergeist came out on June the 4th, 1982, and E.T. one week later, June the 11th, just a week later. What, what are your thoughts on this? Um, uh, and when it comes to her death, I don't typically like to speculate on things that I don't have any evidence of, so I don't know anything about whether he was involved in that death. I mean, we, I've heard the, the rumors and, and the stories about what had happened and all that, so I don't know about that, but I do know that, you know, there were... Uh, uh, occult consultants uh, on Poltergeist, which is pretty interesting. Uh, I know that you know movies always have consultants. That's, that itself isn't that surprising. But here we're delving into, you know, one of the biggest directors intentionally, you know, having an esoteric occultic kind of con- consultation going on in the film and in the, in the original screenplay. I think I put in in the second book because Poltergeist I do cover in book two. Uh, in the original screenplay, he talks about the beast. Uh, so the 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 it's it's the spirit this entity on the other side of the the veil so to speak is wanting the children it seems like in that case for the beast so i kind of focus on that in the poltergeist analysis um but what i really look at spielberg in terms of is the promotion of the alien mythos so i i see spielberg as somebody who's really there to intentionally promote and instill the idea of the of the alien mythology kind of to replace any of the older uh, notions of, of the gods or Christianity or, or you know, the, the biblical heritage, so to speak. I think, I think Spielberg's job is to um, replace that with a new alien mythology and perhaps down the road, you know, a staged alien invasion or something like that. I mean, after, after what we've seen in 2020, I don't think anything is off the <laughs> table anymore as uh, <laughs> a possibility as the craziest things have gotten. So uh, if if we do eventually see some kind of staged alien invasion for, you know, an end time scenario or something like that, I, I would definitely say that Spielberg was one of the top evangelists for that worldview. I have that subject for later. I'm glad you're mentioning it because I, I do have some section of this interview that I want to discuss this, especially with all these Navy videos that we're seeing lately in mm-hmm. the middle of this COVID-19 thing. These are videos that we discussed years ago and everybody laughed at them as they usually do. But right. now the government is saying that this is real. And all of a sudden there's this silence and acceptance, almost like saying, yeah, we knew you were right, but you know, we just couldn't believe it back then. But back mm-hmm. to, to Spielberg for a second. How often do you see the same director or producer releasing movies at the same time. I remember, I think it was 1983, there were two Bond movies, Sean Connery and uh, what's the other one? The, uh, more or less at the same time, uh, the other 
Bond? I know, yeah, there's like the MGM one and then the other one. Correct. What's about. his yeah. name? What's his name from Moonraker? The, the, the... Roger Moore. Roger Moore. So two Bond movies come in at the same time because there was a fight between the two yes. film companies. But in U this to case, a kill. Yeah, exactly. the, the U2 that. A Kill and what was the other one? Something that to die. Uh, I know I've got the DVD and I always forget it. But uh, what's ironic about that one is that there's a lot of scenes that are very similar to what is in Temple of Doom. I don't know why that is. Oh, but, really? Um, there, Indiana yeah, Jones? Like, yeah, the chase sequence that occurs in uh, Temple of Doom is almost exactly the same as the chase sequence in the MGM Sean Connery that you're talking They have a, a chase scene through India. Now, it's not India in the uh, uh, Temple of Doom at the beginning. They're in, uh, they're in China. But um, there's a lot of parallels and kind of ripped and borrowed scenes at times. It's, it's, I, I don't know what the explanation for that is, but maybe laziness on the part of the studios or maybe more. I don't know. So back to Spielberg for a second. What are the chances of two Spielberg movies coming out one week after the other? Um, that is interesting. I don't uh, immediately have a speculation on that other than my first thought would be, well, uh, you know, that was Spielberg heyday. So, you know, that was like money extravaganza, right? I mean, that would be like no, no telling how much would have been made at the box office. I mean, you know, Jaw, he had a string of just kind of, gold yeah. you know when he, from, from jaws, jaws to, all the way up to et i mean he was really living high on the hog there so closing counters uh, exactly uh, so, so uh I'm, I'm not sure that's a great question i don't I wouldn't venture to to know at this point which of these two spielberg movies do you think intuitively was instrumental in altering public opinion the idea of the existence of otherworldly extraterrestrials would that be close encounters of the third kind or et E.T. I mean, E.T. was just, you know, a mega hit. It went, it went beyond anything anybody expected. Um, Close Encounters is interesting. I, I think it is a really good film, just strictly as a film. Um, I did a, a lengthy analysis of it. And it certainly has a lot of predictive programming to do with Denver and, you know, the, 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 this kind of uh, deep state. And, I mean, they even do things like stage a... Uh, you know, a chemical bio-release type of thing, which is all, you know, to cover up for what's really going on in Devil's Mountain. But I think you can't surpass E.T. because that reached into the minds of millions of children. You know, I mean, I remember being, uh, you know, a kid in the movie theater and I'm watching Elliot there, you know, E.T.'s about to die and Elliot's sitting there crying and, you know, what every kid's crying, right? Yeah. So that has a, a far more powerful impact, I think, than you know, Richard Dreyfus running around playing with his mashed potatoes or whatever. It's like, don't kill the dog and don't kill E.T. That's that, that's what kids say. Now, you've yeah, seen right. you've seen uh, how U.S. military, namely the Navy, as I mentioned, has been releasing UFO footage lately. And it's almost as if people are not surprised. You think movies all the way back, probably the 1950s, has, have served a purpose to acclimate the population, whether they are creating a new false flag, i.e., humanity manufactured and our government-related psyop, or they're truly preparing us for true disclosure. What is your take on this? Well, I do believe there are unexplained phenomena. I don't have any uh, set opinion as to what exactly they always are. I don't, I don't claim to know. Um, but I do think that the government, the deep state, likes to take advantage of those things. And so they're going to, and they have been, I think. I think there's ample evidence to prove that they've been concocting a uh, scenario to utilize 
the that phenomena uh both real phenomena and staged uh fake things uh, uh created things whatever um to eventually usher in some kind of new perspective new mythos new narrative and i came across uh, there's an academic actually as dr brenda densler she wrote a book on uh, the ufo phenomenon and uh, i think i cited it in the second book under the the chapter on uh Shyamalan signs movie uh, in that chapter uh i i noted how densler found a brookings institute document from the 60s where it actually discusses the possibility of utilizing the ufo an alien mythos and phenomena to replace biblical Western types of worldviews. Uh, it's as far as I can tell, it's an authentic document. So I really think, and she's not a conspiracy theorist. She's just presenting this as kind of an academic looking at UFO cults and this kind of stuff to say what, what's been going on at this, what is this phenomena? Um, so she tries to be somewhat neutral with it. Uh, but I think she really stumbled onto a key piece of data there that, that, uh, that that's what the overall plan here is, is to usher in this kind of new aeon, this new worldview, this new era. Um, it does, I think, connect into Crowley and those kinds of secret societies, which they, they profess to be in contact with, quote unquote, entities. Uh, one of the things I do at my website is I do a, a, a global elite lecture series where I go through the writings of the top elite uh, from the last century. And we've done almost 50 of those. And uh, one of the guys that we cover is uh, John C. Lilly, Dr. John C. Lilly, who was loosely in the uh, under the ages of the MK Ultra program with his dolphin, his crazy dolphin stuff that he was doing, giving him acid and all this kind of stuff. Well, Lilly was uh, pretty candid about his interactions with uh, aliens and entities. Uh, he was in the circles of Tim Leary. Tim Leary loved the idea of contacting the entities through LSD and all this stuff. So I'm just saying that there's also this other kind of you know, drug, uh, LSD hallucinogen milieu to the intelligence agencies in Hollywood, because actually the first, uh, test, some of the first people to, to delve into, uh, doing LSD regularly were not hippies. It was actually Cary Grant. Do you know, Cary Grant was one of the first big <laughs> uh, proponents of LSD because he was hanging out. I did out not know people. that. I knew about men yeah. staring at goats, but not that. Yeah. And he was hanging out with, uh, Leary and all those guys. And he was like an early big proponent and then uh, I think they got JFK even the trip acid. So they were they were dosing up the president before any of the hippies and Cary Grant before any of the hate Ashbury Laurel Canyon people were doing it. Anyway, point being um, that also typically connects into the quote unquote alien uh, stories because they're always talking about that the entities that they speak to and interact with are the same as the you know clockwork elves of the of dmt and terrence mckenna that's the same as the aliens that's the same as the beings the entities i see this all as one uh one phenomenon that i think the the elite do want to capitalize on but you see what mckenna and leary and some of all the they seem to describe inter interdimensional beings Unless it's just from figments of their imagination. But I tend to believe that, you know, the work of Dr. Rick Strassman, too, on the mm -hmm. spirit molecule, I think they could be interacting with entities from other dimensions. And other people say it's extraterrestrial when it could be actually right here vibrating at a different frequency. But that's, oh, I totally believe that's what it is. I mean, I, I've had bad acid trips. I've seen Oh, you stuff. have. It's all, it's real. I mean, it's not just a mental phenomenon. I mean, you, there really is something that you, that there, that there's a contact that's occurring. Um, I don't profess to understand at all, but I do think that's what's going on. And I don't think everybody's lying. I mean, there's so many, you know, uh, 
testaments to this, uh, you know, all the way back to ancient shamanic traditions. Right. You can read Mercilia. Mercilia Iliata is a big opus on shamanism, the Oxford scholar who wrote a 500-page book on uh, shaman, shamanic traditions throughout the whole world. And they all have the same patterns. They all have the exact same uh, structure to being dismembered in the in the in the dream state in the the spiritual world being put back together. Then they come back and they have the, you know, the power of the deva or the spirit or whatever uh, after that ritual initiation in the spirit realm. I mean, that, there's no there's no way that would be a unified process across all these different shamanic cultures uh, unless there was some, unless there wasn't you know something spiritual going on here. And they all, you know, some of these civilizations uh, and tribes report dreaming at the same time, coming back, and they all talk about the same dream. So there's something to it. But back to Kubrick for a moment. There's that famous photograph of Kubrick with illuminist NASA man Arthur C. Mm -hmm. Clarke and NASA administrator George Mueller. What mm -hmm. do you think they were doing together? I, I am a, uh, a skeptic on uh, the moon stuff. So I, I don't have hard proof uh, that, that Kubrick filmed it. I'm a skeptic, though. So I think it's very plausible that he or someone else around that time period, uh, Disney perhaps, could have been involved in that. I mean, if you look at the uh, Laurel Canyon uh, uh, you know, stuff with the Dave McGowan covers with so many of the high-level high, high level Hollywood elite of that time, including Walt Disney, uh, you know, having – uh, basically free reign and access to the cutting edge air force studios the, that, that was, that we know was involved in filming the, uh, the, uh, Trinity, uh, blast and all that stuff. They had the doc, they actually doctored all that up as public, public knowledge at the, uh, <laughs> Laurel Canyon lookout mountain studios. Uh, um, you know, this was basically a secret air force propaganda studio up in the mountains, uh, uh you go up into, uh, uh, Wonderland Avenue, got to drive up Mulholland Drive. Um, so my view is that uh, I think it's very likely that Kubrick was involved in uh, that that kind of stuff. Um, the deal, you know, I, I think it's probably true that the, that he had to make that deal that if he would work with the Air Force and NASA, he could get access to the Zeiss lens, this million-dollar lens or whatever. So um, I think probably Kubrick signed on to what he thought would be this, you know, make him uh, a made man, so to speak, in terms of Hollywood. And then he probably found out that this deal wasn't always cooked up to be because, you know, as time progresses, Kubrick seems to get more and more critical of the establishment. And, uh, you know, Eyes Wide Shut, <laughs> the last one seems to be uh, probably a critique. Uh, I mean, some people think that, you know, he's in on it or whatever. Well, even if he was, maybe he got in on it and saw how evil it was you know i mean there's people can change their mind you know that's not all or all or nothing so uh i think that's what's going on there that's probably a period when kubrick is being coaxed into you know working with the, the elite working with the establishment and then probably coming to find out over over the next few decades that it wasn't what it was cracked up to be i'll reserve my opinion on the moon and and kubrick but you know if you play devil's advocate for a moment and you are nixon and you are the u.s government and you were portraying to be you know, all this just prowess in front of the Soviet Union. I'm pretty sure they must have a plan A and a plan B in case mm -hmm. something fails. So what a great opportunity if you have a filmmaker like Kubrick and you saw 2001 A Space Odyssey, let's just put him as a plan B here. So, mm -hmm. you know, let's put that on the side for a moment. But I remember back in 19, what was it, 86 or 87, this is when I really started looking into what's going on with Kubrick 
when Full Metal Jacket came along. Yeah. yeah. And I thought, wait a second, this is supposed to be Vietnam, but it's all filmed in London, in the outskirts of London. How did that happen? Why did he do it there? And that's when I started asking questions that he made all his movies from there. Why do you think that was? If I recall, he uh, eventually got really paranoid. I mean, I think he, exactly. he didn't want to, he was afraid to leave. Uh, he had his estate there and he, I think he was afraid if he went somewhere or that this was at least some of the stories is that he, he, he was, I don't know. And I don't recall exactly at what point he got afraid to do that. But obviously that movie is, you know, uh, critical of war, <laughs> yeah. critical of, uh, uh, the war of the time. Um, so, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't have actually any opinion on whether he was killed for what he did in Eyes Wide Shut. I don't know. I mean, I know Vivian talks about the missing uh, 28 minutes or whatever the film. Um, I just don't know. Um, though that's that's why what I typically try to do is stick to the narratives themselves. I'm not saying that I don't have any interest in Kubrick's life, but when I do the analysis of the films, I'm really just trying to analyze what what's within the, with within the narratives. And then if I'm stepping outside of that, uh, like with Tom uh, and Nicole, you know, in the, the period of uh, eyes wide shut, I'm looking at, you know, what's going on with Scientology and that kind of stuff. So uh, I just don't know. Kubrick's kind of an enigma. He's a strange character. He was a, a weirdo, a perfectionist. Um, but if you have any enlightenment on why he, he did that with uh, full metal jacket, you feel free to let me know. But I feel like clockwork orange, full metal jacket, you know, these are, uh, very critical of the establishment. They are critical of the military industrial complex, uh, or the, you know, medical complex, I guess you could say with, with clockwork orange. Um, but I think that he, he's, he's starting to, you know, talk about MK ultra, you know, clockwork, clockwork orange is an MK ultra type of film. Um, the processes of MK ultra are basically, uh, in many ways, similar to the way that military uses boot camp to break people down and this kind of stuff. So, uh, you know, if you're going to make these anti-war films, you know, you're going to at times suffer repercussions if the establishment wants war. Wasn't the movie Dr. Strangelove where really opened the doors for him to gain, as you said, the lens and all the funding that he wanted? Probably. Um, uh, I mean, I think Spartacus is uh, pretty powerful, too. Uh, I mean, it's you could argue that that's perhaps where I mean, if, if he was into Illuminism or an Illuminist, if he was into the 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 sort of outer sphere of the communist idea of, I mean, the, the narrative of Spartacus is obviously kind of a communistic narrative and, uh, you know, the, the names, right. Spartacus, why shopped, right. I mean, this goes right back to the Illuminati narrative, which at its most basic level is communism. So it's possible that, you know, maybe back at that time period early on, Kubrick was into the, you know, the, the, the Marxist ideas of, of, the outer spheres and outer circles of communism and liberalism, progressivism, and the, you know, the, the popularity of, uh, of Marxism and the reds in Hollywood back at that time. And then maybe as he kind of got deeper and deeper into the power structure, uh, he's starting to realize that, Oh, actually, you know, it's not really Marxist at the top of this. It's not really, you know, uh, I'm not really fighting a, a, you know, the rich guy, I'm actually working for the rich guy, right? So, so whereas in the narrative of Spartacus, you're, you're telling the story of the slave revolt, right? Uh, when you come up to eyes wide shut, you've got 
oh, actually, there's this British lord that's a zillionaire that's like, you know, got a giant sex cult that runs things. <laughs> you know what I mean? So maybe he saw that you know, that's that's actually what's really going on. And it's not, you know, the poor masses versus uh, uh, the rich guy that's, you know, the proletariat's going to rise up or some nonsense like that. So Kubrick died March 7th, 1999, four months later, July 16th, 1999, Ice Wide Shot was released. Do you think if he had lived to see it, the movie would have been the same? Or do you think that behind the scenes, they took it to the chopping block? Well, the story is that, yeah, it was uh, it was a little much. Um, so something had to be removed. Um, and I think Vivian, you know, Vivian seems to back that up. His daughter, um, that seems likely to me. Uh, but even what comes out, I mean, I was talking to my, my fiance the other night about this. And I was, we were just laughing that, I mean, I don't know what would have been missing. That is the, the, I mean, the movie has pretty much everything in it already. So Uh, I can't imagine what exactly it was. Maybe it would have uh, pointed out certain people or elites. I don't know. But uh, I think the movie as it is pretty much reveals enough. Uh, it tells us everything. It's it's Epstein, you know, two, two or three decades ago. And if you go into the Epstein story, you go back to Robert Maxwell. I mean, Ghislaine's yeah. father was pretty much running that operation, the same type of operation of entrapment, honey, honey traps, swallow operation, raven, raven operations, compromise operations back uh, all the way back into the Cold War. You know, that's what that's what he was doing. So I guess he trained, you know, Ghislaine and Ghislaine hooked up with uh, Jeffrey to run that operation. And it's just so perfect as to what is in eyes wide shot that I can't fathom that Kubrick is not talking about this kind of a thing. I'm not saying he's intentionally mentioning Epstein. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that type of an operation, which has been around for a long time. I mean, you know, that's what this movie is about. It's obvious. And you know, the, the whole point is that the normies, the normal people out there, they just can't grasp this. You know, Tom Cruise represents the most successful normie type of person he thinks he's at the top of the totem pole you know he's an, a successful doctor in new york his wife's a you know a, a successful artist she teaches art or whatever so they think they're at the top of the totem pole and then they find out oh there's this whole other world of people way above me they're not bound by the law they have at their disposal all the powers of an intelligence agency you know they can change the news they can have me followed and harassed i mean they've got just immense wealth beyond whatever i could imagine you know they do sex cult operations they've got you know rituals going on i mean it's just it's a whole other world that he kind of stumbles into uh, or is he intentionally being led into it that's kind of my thesis on the film is that it's an intentional uh, initiation right? the whole point of the film is showing that tom is being initiated and it's actually the audience's eyes that are wide shut that's my take on it and i think with epstein just like people say he didn't kill himself i don't even think that he's dead there are too mm. there's too much evidence out there, cameras being off, changing of guards, guards mm -hmm. falling asleep, a truck coming in anyway. But Robert Maxwell, I don't even think that he died when they say that he died. Such a powerful player. I mean, mm -hmm. I hate to even use the words, but M-O-S-S-A-D. I mean, they are here to, to create an enterprise to help a certain country. But that's a different story. And with Gillian Maxwell, you know, the daughter, then you have the, the sisters, Elizabeth, uh, Isabel, Christine, all involved with coding in programs that are so critical to the intelligentsia. Mm. 
Yeah, it's it's kind of staggering. I mean, really, the the information that's been coming out is almost it's it's almost too much to even <laughs> to even make. I, I I I'm surprised. I mean, even though you know you spend years research, researching this stuff and then you see what comes out, it's just kind of like, you know, and and yeah, stranger I mean, I than fiction. To, to, I understand your skepticism because you know people who are op, uh, operating as uh, you know compromisers and fixers at that level, uh, you know. Would they really dispose of them that quickly? Maybe. But, uh, you know, like you said, I could easily see uh, that Maxwell, you know, didn't die on a boat or whatever. You know, who, who knows? I mean, look at the, the, the legal team, Alan Dershowitz, known to have gone to the island and defending him. And it would be easier to concoct something, say he's dead. That's it. Everybody mm. just goes back home to watch the football game or what have you, and just, you know, this continues. Now, let's see what happens with Gillian Maxwell. Now, a quick quick comparison. How do you compare Stanley Kubrick, Steven Spielberg, and George Lucas? How do I compare them? Uh, what, what do you mean? Well, you know, they came out earlier, Stanley Kubrick, but, you know, Steven Spielberg and George Lucas were... If, Going back and forth, you have mm -hmm. movies coming out at the same time. Star mm -hmm. Wars, Indiana Jones, they collaborated with one another. How do you compare those two in terms of all the symbolism that we see? There are There is overlap. I mean, uh, Kubert definitely likes some aspects of uh, surrealism. He likes aspects of uh, Jungian archetypes. Uh, so the most obvious... Parallel would be uh, Carl Jung, Joseph Campbell. You know, we all know that uh, George Lucas is basically just kind of repeating, uh, you know, Joseph Campbell, which is like watered down Carl Jung. Right. So, so there is similarity there. You, you'll notice there are uh, archetypal um, presentations in Eyes Wide Shut. You've got the Edenic state, the Garden Dream. You've got, um, you know, the 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 masks, the initiation, the rituals. Uh, but there's also elements where Kubert, uh, you know, will will have a lot of affinities with Freudianism too. I don't, I can't recall much Freudianism in the canon of Lucas, except for maybe THX. You you can make an argument that a lot of the uh, um, quasi bondage type of uh, <laughs> sadomasochist type stuff with the weird uh, '70s robot cops, maybe that's <laughs> Freudian and. There's elements of Freudianism, I guess, with, you know, uh, Robert Duvall uh, and his his uh, sex machine and he doesn't sleep with his partner or whatever. I'll, yeah, that that's there. But uh, typically, um, Lucas is in, is in the vein of, of a Carl Jung and, and Kubrick tends over towards a, a Freud, I would say, pretty consistently throughout their, their canons. Um, as to how to compare that with Spielberg – Uh, Spielberg has a little bit of both. He, he has the Freudian elements. He has the, uh, uh, the Jungian elements, but he also will include, uh, Kabbalistic elements at times. Um, I think Kubrick does too. I think Jay Wiedner proves that in his documentary. I don't know that Lucas does much with Kabbalism that I can think of off the top of my head, but, uh, there are a lot of similarities. I think if you look at AI, I did a whole, did a whole chapter on AI. That's, that's an interesting Uh, Kubrick story that Spielberg took over. You right. know, everybody wonders what direction Kubrick would have taken AI in. Um, you know, Wiener has been saying and teasing for a long time that he was going to put out his uh, third documentary on Kubrick about how AI dealt with uh, pedophilia and, and stuff like this, which 
that's entirely possible. I, I do include in my chapter kind of an analysis of mind control with uh, with David, the character, the the, the Pinocchio right. <laughs> robot boy. Um, I don't know. Those are good questions. You're asking me really hard questions. <laughs> like, how do I how do I compare these guys? I mean, on one level, they they are speaking to the subconscious. Uh, on another level, they're they're also pop guys. You know that that's weird too because these are commercial filmmakers. You know, these aren't avant-garde filmmakers. So they're uh, at, at once appealing to the esoteric, but at the same time trying to just do commercial films. But also, I think, you know, at the behest to some degree of the deep state. I don't know why the thought just came to mind with uh, Hal, 2001 Space Odyssey, and what mm-hmm. was his name? David, I think might might be, from from Prometheus. There's... I, don't, I see a similarity. Even though we can't see Hal, we see this other one personified. Interesting. Right. Well, in 3001, uh, in Arthur C. Clarke's story, you know, Bowman and, and Hal merge together. So they actually, that becomes the future huh. transhumanist reality. Is It's called Halman. It's Bowman, the astronaut, merged with Hal, the 9000, and it, that's the future kind of transhumanist uh, in, vision that Clark has. Um, but I think you could be onto something with uh, the, the connection between David in terms of AI and David as the AI in, uh, in Prometheus. Right. Because if you watch Alien Covenant, that's all full of biblical themes exactly. where it's almost like the new covenant. It's no longer Adam and Eve and that kind of stuff, the biblical covenant. It's like a new covenant with AI, which is, which is uh, I did a video on that, yeah. Do you think the 80s was the, the foundation when it comes to transhumanism, singularity? Because I'm thinking of movies like uh, this kind of a, a low-budget movie, I think it was, Cherry 2000. Remember that movie? Yeah, yeah. I put that in the second book. I love it. Oh, there you go. And Cherry 2000. I, I really enjoyed it. And then you had, mm-hmm. uh, uh, what's the name, James Cameron's uh, uh, Schwarzenegger. I'll be back. What's the name? Um, What's that name? Uh, what Arnold say? Schwarzenegger's the name of the movie. Uh, uh, what's the name? A, uh, Terminator. T2, Terminator. Terminator. Yeah. You have all, it, it, the eighties is plagued with movies where you're giving life to all these robots, almost as if they're preparing us for a future. That was like intentional. That. You're absolutely right. In fact, um, it, I did a whole talk on uh, Annie Jacobson's book uh, about the history of DARPA. Oh yeah, she, I love her. She did this 500 pages, and, I, and I, so I did that whole book. It was fascinating, and she has a whole section on how uh, the, the the Defense Department, DARPA, they were consulting with Hollywood uh, pretty consistently throughout this whole time. And uh, DARPA's right around the time of you know, the SDI, right? So Star Wars Defense Initiative, this comes out of Bohemian Grove. Uh, so it makes perfect sense that, you know, right after SDI, you would get this promotion of the kind of Skynet stuff because they were actually talking about creating, you know, Skynet and the the, the Terminator-style stuff back in the early 80s. And I, I do think that eventually that, that that's why they, they, they chose that series as a vehicle because the first one was like a noir kind of almost B movie. You know, if you watch the first Terminator, it's a good movie, but it wasn't, you know, this super mega blockbuster like T2 was. Uh, and if you watch T2, you know, they really ramp it up. Oh, and, yeah. And, and it, you know, Skynet is this future, you know, AI system that runs everything. And, yeah, I, I would say that because of the SDI and the, and the rise of robotics at that time, you just see this explosion of uh, AI transhumanist movies in the 80s. Absolutely. 
Well, then you have uh, this movie that it looks like a Spielberg movie. I'm, I'm not, perhaps he even was a producer. Eagle Eye, 2008, uh, Shia LaBeouf. Do you remember that movie? Yes. I, in fact, uh, you beat me to that one because I haven't actually covered it yet, although I have. I own it. I've seen it uh, multiple times. This this is the predictive AI algorithm. There you this go. Is, this is Google basically doing uh, global brain, uh, deep brain type stuff where <laughs> they're predicting people's uh, movements. Um, and, and in that film, the narrative is that the, Shia, the Shia LaBeouf characters uh, functioning kind of like an experiment. Like so the AI is kind of testing, uh, you know, that they're testing the so, so-called consciousness of the AI on this on this guy, on this, this poor Patsy who's kind of framed for this stuff. And. He goes on this long adventure just kind of trying to clear his name and figure out what's going on and, you know, trying to figure out why this AI is basically uh, targeting and framing him. I thought it was a very well-made movie. And then as you yeah, progress in time with Google and the way it's behaving these days, right. and then you get the 5G towers and they might be 6G, 7G, 6, whatever. But if you have a Terminator, if you have Eagle Eye, and in the future what they want is to disband police, disband the military, yeah. and perhaps use these you know, AI, you need all these antenna everywhere else to be able exactly. to control that. Do you think there's reality behind this? Yeah, because, uh, uh, you know, here I was watching all these movies and then, and then trying to decode the, the stories and the history behind the movies in terms of deep state type stuff. And then the last global elite book that I did last week, uh, Klaus Schwab, who's the head of Davos, uh, he wrote a book in 2018 called the fourth industrial revolution and in that book, he says that uh, in order to have the massive amount of data uh, transfer that will be going on for everybody being tracked and traced, the 5G and the microchips have to be in place. So he admitted all this in 2018 before any of what we've seen in 2020 even, even happened. I have to ask you then, there's this, you know, story of Ray Kurzweil, who's been talking about this for a long time. Do you right. think there will be a time in the not-too-distant future, especially during this COVID-19 and, and the fact that for the past few years we've had the Sesame social score in China, and I think this is a perfect scenario to perfect the technology that will be coming to the United States and Europe and the rest of the world. Do you think there will become a time where humans 2.0 will, will be the ones living and those who refuse are the ones who are going to be extinct? That's definitely the plan. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Uh, that's not just a far-flung theory of Ray Kurzweil. That's been a a, a posit positive theory for a long time. You can go back to even like the sci-fi writers, Isaac Asimov, people like this. I mean, Asimov was writing about Google back in the 40s and 50s. Philip K. Dick. Uh, if, you read, if you read the Foundation series, PKD, absolutely. Yeah. You know, So, uh, you know, that is in the works that is the plan now whether that will actually come to be i don't know i don't personally believe that ai it is or will be quote conscious uh it depends on how you define consciousness or what you think it is uh, i think there's a really good essay that you can read at oxford called uh, minds machines and girdell and that essay argues uh, as to why ai cannot quote become conscious However, uh, that doesn't mean that it can't be programmed to do some pretty nasty things. So I, I think that they will, uh, you know, if there's not an alien mythos or per perhaps they'll tie together the alien mythos with the AI mythos, uh, you know, they're definitely going to try to convince people that um, AI is conscious, that it has evolved to be. 
self-conscious uh, and, and they'll use that, I think, as a kind of a, a big deception to get people to, you know, opt into getting brain chips, opt into living in a pod and going to the Matrix. Right. That's that's what all those movies were for is to prep us for that stuff, I think. Uh, you know, Schwab and, and her, her, Annie's uh, History of DARPA, you know, all these these elite books pretty much uh, vindicate that. Uh, but I don't think that um, that's actually going to be the case, that humans are going to be wiped out and only, you know, cyborgs or AI will go into the future or something. Do you ever watch the movie Strange Days? I did, actually. I, I When I saw it, when it came out, I didn't really know, you know, what was going on. I remember being in the in the movie theater and kind of falling asleep. <laughs> really? <laughs> but I, but I rewatched it <laughs> recently, and, uh, you know, the, I, I now that we've – where we've come, uh, I had a better appreciation for it. Actually, a lot of the, the, the sci-fi, uh, virtual world stuff, uh, you know, that was pretty, pretty popular in the nineties. It was, it was gaining ground because what they wanted to prepare, prepare us for with the advent of the internet being basically, uh, omnipresent. Right. I, I have gone back and watched a lot of these nineties uh, you know, hacker virtual world movies. And there's quite a bit in those too. I mean, you'll, you'll find them, uh, referencing the Illuminati, they'll be referencing the New World Order. They'll be referencing, you know, uh, 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 microchips, brain chips. All that stuff was 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 all there in the '90s. I think that movie was pretty underrated, and I still even yeah, watch yeah, it on uh, right now. And I think think about it: all these millennials right now that want that love their video games. What an escape getting into the matrix. You want to buy an experience and feel it more than 3D. You feel it completely in your soul, if you will. Yes. Um, that's the danger, I think, is this appeal. Yeah. Uh, one of the MK Ultra doctors, I think it was uh, Gregory, Dr. Gregory Bateson, said that in order, if you really wanted to control man, the quote is something to this effect. Uh, he says you have to capture his imagination. Uh, now, for a long time, we had as you mentioned at the beginning of the show, Disney, you know, Disney functioned to do that, uh, to capture the, the, the youth's imagination for many generations to kind of program them. And I, I do believe Disney is a kind of a big programming center is really what it functions as. Um, but what would be unimaginably more powerful than Disney would be to literally be the God of your own little virtual world. Right. And if they, achieve that and they release that uh, I think that unfortunately that will result in the willful enslavement of most of the population or whoever opts into that system right I mean it'll, it'll probably start out as an opt-in type of thing or something but you know if you read Brave New World uh, you know Huxley basically characterizes it as you know rather than this older system of uh, top-down tyranny all we have to do is make people love their enslavement. And there's no better way to love your enslavement than to believe that you're a god of your own virtual world. Exactly. And I have a couple of questions, and I'll get you answered on the other side because we have to break. Okay. Do you think Disney, Walt Disney, if he had been alive to see the his world come to fruition, would have been a different world? Or do you think he was in line with what we see today, number one? And number two, let me just make you know people that write to me all the time about Google. Let me jump to present day for a moment. The hive mind, the Borg, the temple. I'm referring to Google. 85% of all searches come from Google. And I'm sure you know this. Their browser is Chrome and their graphic processing unit is called Adreno. Put those two words together and what do you get? Adreno Chrome. 
What do you think this is? Is Google's real reason for existing? We'll get your answer on the other side. How can people buy the books? Learn more about your work, Jay. Yeah, the best way to get the book is uh, is at at my website, and uh, I you know I give the advantage there of signed copies. So you get signed signed copies there from the author directly from me. It's a little bit more, but you know there's that's the advantage and. You know, authors don't do that great from uh, Amazon, so that's that's why I just say go to the shop at my website and get it, jaysnelsons.com. Excellent. Well, folks, don't go anywhere. I'm here with Jay Dyer. A lot more and deeper when we return. This is Mel Hostelrick, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first part of this important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the member section or join the Veritas family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focus Life Force Energy, MMS, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Divinia Water, Pure Organic Sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. Now, proceed to the members section or subscribe, to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Veritas. Because you don't want to believe. You want to know. <laughs>